All right, guys, we are back with our teaching in the book of Revelation. And for a very quick review, we are moving through the seven letters, seven epistles to the seven churches in the region of Asia Minor. We've already dealt with the church of Ephesus. That was the apostolic church covering a period of roughly about 30 to 100 AD. This was the church of which the apostles basically lived. That's why we call it the apostolic church. Then we move to the second letter, the church of Smyrna, which basically deal with the period of suffering roughly from around 100 to 313 AD. It was a letter to those Christians, only uh, church in Smyrna, as well as the church of Philadelphia. I had to catch myself. The only two churches that Christ had nothing negative to say about it. It was a period of great suffering for the Christian church. And so now we move to the third letter, which would be the letter to the church in Pergamos or sometimes called Pergamum. So with all of that being said, let us continue to Revelation chapter two, starting at verse number 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has the sharp two edged sword says this. So now we have, first of all, the intended recipient of the of the letter, which is the church in Pergamum. But we always remember, guys, that although this particular address is to the Christians in Pergamum, it has application to all the churches and into every church age. OK, so Pergamum means thoroughly married and the name is quite indicative of actually what is going on in this particular period. So the particular, this prophetic period that we are, we are covering is roughly from about 300 AD. Some say, that, if you want to be precise, 313, but roughly 300 AD up until about 600 AD. Okay. And as we said, the name Pergamum means thoroughly married and it basically dealt with a time in which the Ro I'm sorry, in which Constantine, Roman Emperor Constantine, claimed the Christianity to be the state religion. Okay, but before I get into all of that, let's let me just talk about a few other few other details, and then I'll get into those particular points. But anyway, so it's written to Pergamum. Uh, and Jesus introduces himself as the one who has the sharp two edged sword. Now, this is an introduction from Revelation one, I believe, verse 16. Remember, we take all of the pictures that from the composite picture of Christ that we have in chapter one, we take specifics of that picture and and it is applied to the church and it shows the demeanor of Christ towards that church or towards circumstances or events that are going on in that church. Okay. So the sword is both one in a protective manner, guarding the holiness of Christ, the word of Christ, even the people of Christ, and also one that comes against his enemies. That's, that's why we see the sword is two edged sword. And so the Bible also speaks of the word of God being like a sword that is sharpened. Okay. But anyway, nevertheless, that is the picture of Christ as he stands in judgment and also stands as a protector. 
So, but now let's go back to Pergamum, verse number 13, and we'll open up some of those issues concerning what, what, what I was about to get into concerning Pergamum. All right, now let's get into the commendation. So now he's identified the church that he is talking to, Pergamum. He has identified, Jesus has, identified the way he, his perspective towards the church, okay, the one holding the two-edged sword. So let's get into the commendation that he speaks towards the church. And there's some sort of a mixture here as well. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So in the commendation, the first thing that Jesus does is he identifies. And, and there, this is a statement of compassion when he says, I know where you dwell. Okay. In other words, so he's saying to the Christians in Pergamum that he is aware of their situation and all of the things that are going on in their lives or in their particular area. And geographically, I'm speaking of that, especially geographically with reference to Pergamum. And remember that Jesus constantly said in all of these letters, I know, I know. And so therefore we can always take solace. We can always take comfort that Jesus is aware of our lives. He is aware of the situation. He is aware of the temptations. He is aware of everything that we are going through. Okay. So, but so he says to these Christians in Pergamum, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Okay, so now let's go back and talk about Pergamum. Pergamum was a place that was saturated with all types of temples to idols. They had temples to Athena. They had temples to especially emperor worship. Saint Augustus, I'm sorry, Roman Caesar Augustus had a temple there built to the, that is the worship of the emperor as God. Okay. They had temples to Apollos there, temples to Zeus there. It was saturated with temples to idols there. And also they had, a, they had a major temple to Asclepius. Now Asclepius is the temp is the God of, is the Greek God of healing. And you see that that is sometimes um, represented by the serpent. It, it was represented by the serpent. Uh, at that particular time. And even in today's time, you can see that same insignia being used upon the garments of like doctors. If you pay attention to it, you'll see that insignia of the serpent. Sometimes you see the serpent or surrounded wrapping around the cross or whatever. But the bottom line is it is an idolatrous symbol within itself. And it comes from the Greek idol Asclepius, who was the God of healing. But also too, we see that this is also a common reference to Satan, who is also called the great serpent uh, uh, in Old Testament times. And we also see that as we see that in the same in reference in New Testament as well. But we also see that as early as in the book of Genesis, as Satan used the serpent to bring down uh, the cause the fall of man. 
So the whole point is this in Pergamum, it was a city that was known for idolatry. Also too, that's interesting. And I'm not going to get into that guys. It was also a major center of learning and notice, and I don't want to get into it, but I'm so tempted to get into it. How that these major centers of learning were always saturated with idolatry or had so much demonic activity involved, or they were oppressive to Christian, to Christianity, to Christian doctrine, to the way of Christian people. But nevertheless, that's what was going on in Pergamum. And that's why, and also too, note he said, this is where Satan's throne is. That statement should be taken literally. For Satan had set up his throne in the city of Pergamum. Okay, so let's go on. So where Satan's throne is, according, let's continue their commendation that Jesus is given. So there is a sense of comfort that Jesus is aware of all of the difficulties and the temptations that these Christians feel because of the saturation of idolatry all around. Okay. And we're going to even talk about that even a little more as we get to the end of this section, he continues and he commends them in the statement of comfort. You hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. And so basically the, the, they remained steadfast in holding to Christian doctrine holding to the belief of who Jesus was, the purpose to why Jesus had come. So the Christian, they were holding fast to Christian faith. And that's what Jesus commended them for. Okay. And then he said, even to the point that they did not deny his name in the martyr of a man by the name of Antipas. So what we find is there's a particular man, and this man, there is no record of this man that we do have this Antipas of who he was or what he, whatever happened with him, except for the fact that clearly he was killed for being a faithful Christian witness. Now his name is interesting. When we look at his name, his name can be broken up into like two Greek words. It means against all anti pass against all. And it seems to suggest that this Antipas, as we look at the whole idea of everything that's being expressed here, that this Antipas was against any involvement in spiritual worship. And that is the idolatry that was taking place in the city. He would not bring that in alongside of Christian doctrine as well. Now we're going to talk about that too. And all of that will make more sense as we move on down, but just kind of keep that part in mind, how we, and I think that this is the idea of what's going on with this Antipas meaning of his name as well with the, with that spiritual meaning against all that is against everything that is contrary to the doctrine of of Jesus. Okay. And the bringing in the idea of what Pergamum Pergamum means thoroughly married. It means what thoroughly married. It is what time period again. It is the period roughly between 300 to 600 AD. And what was important about that period 
It is when Constantine, Emperor Constantine, made Christianity the state religion. And when I say state religion, that is the religion of the government, the government sanctioned religion. Okay. And we'll kind of give more details about that as we go into some of the denunciations of Jesus concerning this particular church. We'll talk about that. But nevertheless, this Antipas, Jesus is commending them for holding fast to the faith and even this one Antipas who was killed among you. And again, he says what? Where Satan dwells. So he emphasizes, he, he enunciates the fact twice. I am aware. So it is, he has compassion because of all of the idolatry that these Christians are surrounded by. All right. But, in, and another thing too, about this Antipas on a personal note, what I do like about that in a way, I'm glad that there has not been anything found in history about this Antipas being some sort of a great man. I think that's by design by God. And let me tell you why I think that's by the design. Some, we always hear about so-called great people and people of importance and people of great names and things of that nature and of celebrated names or whatever, right? The, the, the big people, the big people in the spiritual world. But here we have a guy who is basically, if you'll let me say it to, in our vernacular today, he is basically a nobody. He is, we don't know who he is. He has no great name, but guess what? Jesus knows him. Jesus remembers him. And I think that this is by design that there is no historical record about it because it says something to us that we, you may be or consider yourself to be a nobody. You may not have a great name in the church. You may not be some great figure, Paul or Peter or whatever, but nevertheless, you hold fast. You are faithful to Jesus. And even to the point of suffering for Jesus, you like Antipas, you say no to all nonsense. You say no to all of the wickedness. You say no to all of the devices that try to come into your life and you take your stand for Jesus. Now, it may not seem like a big deal to the world. Your name may not be celebrated and called and on the lips of everybody else, but guess who knows your name? And guess who has acknowledged your witness? And guess who is paying attention to your life? And that, to me, that means so much. I want to be like Antipas. My name may not be great, People may not celebrate me in the spiritual world. They may not know me, but there is one who knows me and has acknowledged my faithfulness to him. And he has not forgotten. And I love that. I love that. But anyway, enough of that preaching. So he has given the commendation concerning about he knows where Satan dwells where all of this idolatry and the center of idolatry is. And literally, as I said, guys, where Satan's actual throne was. Now that he's dealt with the commendation, let us move now to his condemnation or to the area where Jesus has problems with the particular church in Pergamum. Verse 14. 
But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Okay. There are two issues in verse 15. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So there were two problems that Jesus had with this particular church. Some who are holding the teaching of Balaam and some who are holding the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So let's deal with those two issues because they are separated. Now, the teaching of Balaam comes from Numbers chapter chapters 22, basically all the way up to 25. So, but 22 to 24 in particular, but also inclusive of chapter 25. Now, Balaam was this false prophet who, when the children of Israel were coming, had come out of Egypt. All right. And they were basically on their way. This was the wilderness warning time on their way to the promised land per se. Okay. And Balak, the king of Moab had gotten together with the elders of Midian. All right. But he was afraid of losing his land and the children of Israel making war against him, overcoming him and his people. And so he hired the false prophet Balaam because he had heard, and it was his firm belief that whomever Balaam cursed, was cursed. And if Balaam blessed a person or people, they were blessed. So Balak, the king of Moab hired for money, Balaam to do, to curse the children of Israel on four separate occasions. Balaam tried to curse the children of Israel, but was prevented from cursing them by God himself, God intervened. And so therefore, Balaam, instead of pronouncing a curse on the children of Israel, he actually blessed them. But Balaam was still intended. He was still desperate to get the money that Balak had offered to get him. So since he could not, since Balaam could not pronounce a curse on the children of Israel, what he did was counsel Balak. He counseled Balak. And what he said was this. I tell you what, I can't curse them by their God, but you can make them curse themselves. Get these pretty Midianite girls and also some of the Moabite girls who were worshipers of idols. Get them and get them to parade around these Jewish boys. And when these Jewish men would see these Midianite women, they would want to marry them and, but make it necessary for them to worship also their gods. That is Baal. And that's what we talk about in Numbers chapter 25, when Israel sinned with Baal of Peor, this was the council of Balaam. So since he couldn't curse them, get them to become a curse to themselves and God will judge them for their spiritual fornication. That's the whole idea for their what spiritual fornication. That's why numbers 25 said they were joined to Baal. They fornicated against God. Okay. 
So the whole issue concerning those in the church of Pergamum was this. And remember what the idea of Pergamum means, thoroughly married, the state church. When um, Constantine made Christianity the state religion, people began to get into the church because it was, quote unquote, it was the thing to do. And it also was the way to get ahead. And so therefore people began to come into the church without any true profession. In other words, they did not believe in Jesus. They did not believe he was the son of God. They did not believe that he died for their sins. They did not believe that he rose again from the dead. The things that were necessary for true Christian faith was being polluted because these people were pagans and they, they were worshipers of idols. And instead of them getting rid of their idolatry, they brought Jesus in alongside of their other gods. Or in other words, Jesus was simply a God amongst their other gods. He was just among their can their canopy of gods. So he was many of their gods. So Christianity therefore became polluted. It was polluted as it was married to the state. And so that's what it means when it says commit sex immorality. Now, indeed, indeed, the worship of idols was often celebrated with sexual immorality, but the pervading idea is spiritual immorality. In other words, they had began to commit adultery. It is adultery against Jesus to take another God. And that's basically what had beginning to happen in the church of Pergamum. So no true Christianity, just everybody just coming in and it, and some, there were even times when whole tribes of people were simply baptized and converted into Christianity. And that's when a lot of things uh, like sprinkling, started to come into effect because since you're bringing in so many people, you don't have time to do the actual baptize, just sprinkle them and just bring them in right quick. But these people were not true confessors and true holders of the Christian doctrine. This is what it is meant by the teaching of Balaam, spiritual fornication and adultery. So now he also talked about verse number 15, the Nicolaitans. Remember the church of Ephesus had resisted the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And this is the second time that Jesus mentioned it. And notice he said it was something that he hated. And to review you again, the teaching, the Nicolaitans was simply this, a separation between the clergy and also the laity, making a distinction between the body of Christ with the ministers, the preachers, the clergy and the common people by giving different rules and regulation. It eradicated this concept. It, it removed, it removed the concept of the priesthood of all believers. In other words, the Bible, the new Testament teaches all believers are priests of Jesus Christ. But the doctrine of the Nicolaitans separated this idea made a distinction between the priests 
and the common people. Okay. And also too, guys, for your information, these things planted the seeds for the Roman Catholic church. All right. And that's why we see all of this beginning to be a big problem. But anyway, so that is the condemnation of Jesus. Now let us look at the Lord's exhortation. 16. Therefore, repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And so Jesus just simply tells the church, turn from these things, resist this whole number. Number one, resist this whole ish, all of this idolatry that is around you. And so let, let me make it in a practical way. So just in case you guys aren't getting it. So you got the Christian community surrounded by all of these temples of idol worship. Remember the seat of Satan's throne is actually there. And there is this constant barragement of where we're trying to infuse all of these things, join all of these things with alongside of Christianity, the idea of marriage. And so no doubt some of the Christians were trying the, the influence to marry these people were pervasive to marry these people who were involved in idolatry, who would not turn away from idolatry and tempt Christians into being involved in idolatry. Not only that, but also the idea being you can serve Jesus and you can also serve these other idols as well. Remember the idea of being married. Remember the idea of being the pervasiveness of idolatry in the culture. So all of this being acceptable and you can still be Christians. Okay. And then again, let's look at it on the economic level. All right. The professional guilds, trade guilds, they were often tied to these centers of idolatry. So if you wanted to make a living, you had to be a member of one of these trade guilds and these professional trade organizations that allow you to sell and make a living. And in order to do these things, you had to be a worshiper of these idols. So the whole point is, it's so pervasive and it's so difficult for these Christians at this time. All right. So to hold themselves aloof, separate from all of this idolatry would be a difficult thing indeed, especially as we enter into notice again, it's a beautiful thing. Smyrna was the period of persecution. Then we get to Pergamum, Pergamum, well, a period of when the Roman emperor makes Christianity the state religion. And now all of a sudden the persecution is gone. You, all you have to do is just kind of go along with the program and everything will be well. You can make a living. You can be respected. You can be accepted in all of these things. And so, so the whole, you see that there's an evil pervasiveness that is going on in Pergamum a seed that is being planted. And so by not no longer, let me tell you what happened. I, I'll slow it down. In persecuting the church, Satan found out that the church actually thrived. 
That's what Smyrna. So instead of persecuting the church, what he did was invaded the church. And that's what Pergamum is all about. The satanic invasion of the church by coming into the church and bringing all of those things, idolatrous things into the church. And you'll see that later on when we talk about the next church, Thyatira. But now it's not that particular time. But the point is, the seed is planted. Okay, but anyway, enough of that. So Jesus tells them to repent or else I am coming to you quickly. Quickly in the also brings the idea of suddenly come upon you and make war. He will make war against that church with the sword of his mouth. All right, now let's go to the promise in verse number 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So the promise of Jesus to those Christians who would obey his word, who would repent, and to those who hold fast, and also not, not just simply to Pergamum. Notice, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to what? To the churches. It applies to every church in every age. He says, I will give him the hidden manna. Remember, I told you, you guys earlier that uh, that was OK. First of all, hidden manna. Manna was the provision. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, God provided them manna. And what was this manna? It was the divine provision of God. It was the food that God had given his people. OK, so. With this idea in mind, remember what I just said concerning Pergamum and about those trade guilds, those professional organizations that you had to be a member of these. You had to be a worshiper of the one of these centers of idolatry. Remember, idolatry was so pervasive. And if you were not an idol worshiper, you could not be a member of the trade guild. So therefore you couldn't make a living. And if you couldn't make a living, you were in danger of starving to death and you could not provide for your family. Okay. So notice what Jesus says here. You hold fast to me. And if you hold fast to me, it, it may be, it's all right. If the world tries to deny you, if the world tries to starve you out because you will not deny me, I will provide for you. So Jesus promises to provide for his people if they hold fast to him, even when the world has come together against them to starve them out. And, and I'm going to tell you something, guys, you're going to definitely see that when we start dealing with the issue concerning the Antichrist. And that's what deal, that's what that mark of the beast is all about. You cannot buy nor sell unless you have the mark of the beast written upon you somewhere. But anyway, anyway, nevertheless, so this is the promise of Jesus when he means by the hidden manna. Then he says, I'm going to give you a white stone. Now the issue, white stones were given for basically two reasons. If a person was acquitted of a crime, he was given a white stone. Now this could be a spiritual understanding too. That is acquitted of not, 
doing the sin of those, some of those, in the church of Pergamum. That is uniting in all of this idolatry and things of that nature, okay? And so Jesus says, I'll reward you with a white stone. Also, the white stone was given as a member of a trade guild. So if you were a member of a special trade guild, they would also give you a white stone. This also could be a spiritual indicator for that as well too. So Jesus is emphasizing the fact that he will take care of his people, okay? And also there would be an acquittal. And he says a new name will be written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This indicates the person's acceptance and that Jesus is saying to that individual who has resisted all of this temptation, well done, well done. All right, guys, thanks for joining me in that. And I think we have to be kind of careful about the church of Pergamon because I think that same thing is still pervasive for us today. There are so many things that are constantly trying to enter and has entered into the church. And the Lord is as he has for then, he is saying the same thing for us today, to remain doctrinally pure. Be weary of the attempts of Satan to bring all of this foolishness into your life and just simply hold to the doctrines in the word of God. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me on that one. Catch you next time. Have you subscribed yet? What are you waiting for?